Hello listeners, I'm Vivian, and this is Wretched Conditions, an A to Z guide of occupational hazards through the industrial ages. As mentioned in the trailer, this series sits at the intersection of medicine, history, and legislation, and covers some of the world's deadliest jobs. Each episode will dive deep into the medical and historical aspects of illnesses or injuries that people have incurred while working. I'll also talk a little bit about the historical and social shifts that have occurred as a result of these diseases and afflictions. The episodes of Wretched Conditions are designed to be an A to Z, which means that each letter of the alphabet will get its own set of topics. I'm going to be covering everything from lead poisoning to Q fever to workplace accidents, and also a lot of history. Ironically, this podcast was officially conceived on Labor Day this year, which was totally accidental, although it definitely feels a bit like fate. (laughs) But before we set sail on this exploration of misery business, I want to introduce myself a little bit more and also demarcate the discussion so that everyone has a good understanding of the scope, time period, and all the key terms that we'll be going over. So again, my name is Vivian. That's not my real name, but I wanted to use a pseudonym just for the mystery of it. Um, I have a master's degree in public health, specifically in infectious diseases and health communication. I've been interested in health and medicine for a really long time. And I've worked in a healthcare setting in several capacities, both on the patient care side and on the laboratory. I'm also a huge history buff, which means I'm very handy on a pub trivia team um, because I'm full of random historical facts and information. I've long been fascinated with the way that public health touches nearly everything in our lives on a daily basis. And I wanted to find a way to share all those interactions with other people who may not be familiar with just how extensive and involved public health is. Um, It's been a dream of mine to write a book, but since we locked down for quarantine, I found myself listening to a ton of different podcasts. So I thought, why not start one of those instead? It's certainly a little bit easier than uh, trying to publish a book. So figured I would try it out. Um, There are a ton of COVID-related podcasts that are really blowing up lately, so I didn't want to rehash any of that information since I'm sure people are a little inundated and overwhelmed with it at the moment. And I was having a chat with someone recently about luminous paint radiation poisoning, as one does, and thought, what if I explored public health in the workplace specifically? So I decided to go in that direction. Uh, As a side note, the reason my friend and I got onto the topic of radioactive paint is because she was looking at The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women, which is a book by Kate Moore. It's about these young women who were eventually called the Radium Girls, who worked in factories after World War I and painted watch face dials with this glowing greenish paint. And they'd lick their brush in between painting to keep the bristles narrow and smooth. But what they didn't know and what their company had chosen not to tell them was that the radium that made the paint glow was eventually going to kill them, and quite horrifically, as I might add. Um, I won't get into the details too much here because the Radium Girls will have their own episode later on, but they, in their own way, helped kick off this whole saga. On that note, let's define some basic terms so you can get an idea of when, where, and what I'll be focusing on. So first up is public health. What is it exactly? Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica defines public health as the art and science of preventing 
disease, prolonging life, and promoting physical and mental health, sanitation, personal hygiene, control of infectious diseases, and organization of health services. Now, I rather like that it is technically both a science and an art. I feel like that's very accurate. Um, My background is very much uh, in science and the humanities, a science and an art, so I feel like that resonated with me um, really strongly. Uh, And there's so much of public health that does fall onto the very hard science, medical, clinical side of things. You've got epidemiology, toxicology, infectious diseases, environmental science, pretty much anything that you would see a doctor for. Um, But then you've also got the softer side that exists more in the humanities fields, policy, law, regulations, social marketing, public service announcements, housing, food, water, community support, education, stuff like that. I'm sure a lot of people credit things like electricity and technology with bringing us into the 20th century, but frankly, public health is really at the top of the list. Do you have clean water coming out of your tap? You can thank public health for that. Is your milk free of formaldehyde? Also public health. Is there a seatbelt in your vehicle that you are mandated by law to wear? Public health. Do you work an eight-hour day? You guessed it. Public health. It is responsible for all of those things and much more. One of my English teachers in high school had this great quote, nothing we see today makes sense except in the light of history. And that's so true in this case. Public health exists in nearly every aspect of your daily life, but most people probably don't recognize its impact. Um, Next time you're out and about with a mask, I might add, look around and picture what life would be like without proper sewage disposal, food safety laws, and road regulations. And then thank your public health friends for doing what they do. Next up is occupational medicine, which is a branch of medicine concerned with the health, safety, and welfare of persons in the workplace and focuses on the prevention and treatment of diseases and accidental injuries that are acquired at or because of the occupation. So it's kind of like public health, but specifically for your workplace. Occupational medicine is the primary focus of this podcast, so we will be talking a lot about dangerous jobs and industries and the diseases and injuries involved in them. So lastly, let's get a time frame and geographic area in mind. The title says industrial ages, which I am using as a catch-all term for everything from the first industrial revolution, which stretches from approximately 1760 to 1830, and the second industrial revolution, which is approximately 1870 to 1914, and includes the industrial booms throughout the 20th century. There is an argument over whether a third or even a fourth industrial revolution has occurred or is currently occurring, but as I'm not an expert, I can't really make that call, Um, but I would be remiss to leave out the massive shifts in industry that occurred in post-World War I. So a disclaimer, a few of the topics we will go over are outside that time period, but I am including them anyways because on wretched conditions, the rules are made up and the points don't matter. So geographically, we will be focusing on the U.S. and the U.K. since those are the places 
I know most about, but we will also cover some occupations in locations outside of those areas. So now that that's all settled, let's get into it. Today we'll be talking about two things. The first is a disease I'm sure most of you have heard about at some point in time, most likely late at night when you're still awake at 2am for some godforsaken reason, sprawled across the couch with a half-empty barrel of cheese puffs balanced on your chest. You're in the middle of a commercial break, waiting for that Hallmark rom-com to come back on, when suddenly you're startled by a disembodied voice from the TV, urgently imploring you to take prompt action. Attention! If you or a loved one was diagnosed with mesothelioma, you may be entitled to financial compensation. Now, we've all seen the memes poking fun at these notorious and ubiquitous adverts, but the disease it seeks to inform the public about, mesothelioma, is no joke. The commercial goes on to detail that mesothelioma is a rare cancer linked to asbestos exposure. Exposure to asbestos in the Navy, shipyards, mills, heating, construction, or the automotive industries may have put you at risk. Please don't wait. Call, insert name of questionable law firm, now. This commercial, and the countless others like it, lurk on late night TV to beseech you to seek immediate legal counsel about this strangely named disease. But why? What is mesothelioma, and why does it matter? First, a quick anatomy lesson. So, inside your body, there is a layer of tissues that surrounds the organs of your chest, abdominal cavity, and part of your pelvis. It is called the mesothelium, and it protects your organs and facilitates movement, such as breathing or bending. Basically, any sort of movement, really. Mesothelioma is a malignant tumor, in other words, a cancer, of the mesothelium. As you can imagine, cancer in the tissues that surround all of your vital organs is pretty awful. Common symptoms of mesothelioma include a dry cough, shortness of breath, pain in the chest or abdomen, fever or night sweats, pleural effusion, which is really just a fancy way of saying fluid around the lungs. Um, Nothing fancy about that, though. (laughs) Um, Fatigue and muscle weakness. These symptoms really only begin to appear once tumors have spread and grown large enough to start pressing against the chest wall and the abdominal cavity. Unfortunately, it is an incurable cancer, and the life expectancy for most mesothelioma patients after their diagnosis is approximately 12 to 21 months, which is not very long, hence the sense of urgency in those late-night commercials. So, what causes this horrific cancer? You've probably heard of the culprit before. It's asbestos. But what the heck is it? As I was researching this topic, I came across this spot-on description of it. It's (laughs) that puppy stuff that it costs a fortune to take out of the walls of public schools. You've probably either seen pictures of it before or witnessed it with your own eyes, hopefully while wearing adequate respiratory protection. So asbestos is a name given to not just one, but a group of naturally occurring fiber-like minerals that have been used heavily throughout both, both ancient and modern times. It is cheap, fireproof, lightweight, resistant to corrosion from water and acids, electrically non-conductive, 
durable, versatile, and serves as a great insulator. And funnily enough, despite it being made out of actual rock, it can be spun into thread, which can then be made into fabric. And since it's not like your typical cotton cloth, rats and mice don't want to nest in it, which is an added bonus. Due to all these fabulous qualities, asbestos has been interwoven into human civilization for thousands of years. It can be found on every continent naturally occurring um, and has been used in everything from blankets, pottery, jewelry, wicks for oil lamps, paper, brake linings, tiles, building insulation, ironing boards, electrical systems. You name it, it might have had asbestos in it. (laughs) Apparently during the Middle Ages, they would make clothes and tablecloths out of it. And partly because doing laundry was such a pain back then, um, they would literally just dip the garments and the tablecloths into a fire. And you got to remember, this stuff is fireproof. And they'd wait for the stains to burn off. (laughs) How wild is that? Like, let me just set the washer on extra hot today. (laughs) So asbestos was lauded as this miracle mineral for the longest time, but... Tragically, as many things that we used to use widely, it was eventually discovered to be very toxic. When you inhale or swallow the microscopic asbestos fibers, your body has no way to get it out, and it doesn't break down either. So it sits there in your tissues and causes inflammation and damage that can become malignant tumors. As an environmental toxin, it is unique in that the risk for cancer, particularly mesothelioma, continues to increase even after you stop being exposed to it. Asbestos is what is known as a complete carcinogen, which means that it can both initiate and promote cancer. Now this fact is an essential point, and I will explain the reason for that later on in this episode. There are four types of cancer that are caused by asbestos exposure. Mesothelioma, which we've already gone over. Lung cancer, laryngeal cancer, and ovarian cancer. Additionally, there are also non-cancerous diseases caused by asbestos exposure. Asbestosis is one of them. Like the previously mentioned mesothelioma, asbestosis suffers also display shortness of breath and a dry cough. However, their symptoms are not caused by tumors, but by scarring within the lungs. When you inhale the tiny asbestos fibers, they can become lodged in your lung tissues. Your body can't break down these fibers or expel them, so instead your immune system mounts an inflammatory response to try to protect itself. It sends in macrophages, which are a type of white blood cell that surrounds and digests foreign substances, to attempt to dissolve the asbestos fibers. The macrophages encourage connective tissue cells called fibroblasts to try to patch up the injured lung tissues and insulate the surrounding cells from further harm. I suppose you can picture it being kind of like an oyster trying to coat an irritating grain of sand, but instead of ending up with a shiny pearl, you simply get scar tissue. If you are exposed to a lot of asbestos dust over a long period of time, the amount of tissue scarring can become quite widespread. Your lungs can get so damaged, they become stiff. It becomes physically very taxing to breathe, 
since your lungs can't contract and expand as they normally would. If the asbestos fibers have made it deep enough into your lungs to become embedded in your alveoli, these tiny sacs where oxygen is exchanged for carbon dioxide in your blood, they too will become scarred. This makes it difficult for your body to stay properly oxygenated and expel CO2. Asbestosis is sadly an irreversible condition and will progress from difficulty to disability to eventual death. In modern days, a lung transplant can help asbestosis patients extend their life. However, all other treatment options are unfortunately palliative. Supplemental oxygen and medications to manage pain and lung secretions can help make patients more comfortable, but asbestosis is unfortunately incurable. Luckily, it is not as severe or deadly as mesothelioma, so post-diagnosis, patients can expect to live for decades rather than months. Although, in some cases, asbestosis can lead to mesothelioma, as the presence of the asbestos fibers in the tissues can both initiate and promote cancer cell formation. All in all, asbestos exposure is awful. We know that now, in part thanks to those alarming adverts, uh, but also because of a woman named Nellie Kershaw. Nellie Kershaw was born in 1891 in Rochdale, Greater Manchester, in the UK. At the time, Rochdale was a boomtown of the Industrial Revolution and well-known for its textile mills. Although these mills offered economic opportunities to the townsfolk, they hid a deadly secret from their workers. But this negligence would cost them, a price which Nellie would eventually pay with her life. She left school at the age of 12 or 13 to work in one of Rochdale's cotton mills. Cotton mills themselves are dangerous enough. Inhaling the cotton particles can lead to a disease, which we will discuss in the second episode. Brownie points to whoever can guess which one it is. Uh, in 1917, Nellie would leave the cotton mill and transfer to the Turner Brothers Asbestos Factory in Spotton Valley. That particular factory would eventually become the world's largest asbestos textile factory. Some of the buildings of the factory complex still stand today, and the place is genuinely enormous. At the height of production, approximately 2,000 workers processed asbestos fibers into cloth and yarn. In the old black and white photographs, you can see that some of the women in the production lines are wearing gloves or hand protection, but most are not wearing any type of mask or face covering. So they are simply breathing in any asbestos fibers or dust that may linger in the air around them. Now, Nellie's role was a rover. I frankly had no idea what that was, so I turned to the yarn and weaving side of YouTube to illuminate that for me. So to turn unprocessed fibers into yarn, you have to card the pile of disorganized fibers, brushing it essentially, so that they're all going in the same direction and then gather them together and draw them out into one long length. You end up with this thick, fuzzy looking string that can be coiled up into a ball, kind of like a, it looks like a ball of yarn essentially, um, or onto a roll. This is called a roving. And the fibers on that roving can then be spun either alone or with other types of fibers like cotton, for example, to make yarn. So a rover's job is to handle the unprocessed asbestos fiber 
and prep it for the yarn spinning stage of the textile manufacturing. Nellie was employed as a rover in the Turner factory until July 1922, when her health began to deteriorate to such a point that she found herself too sick to work. Weighed down with shortness of breath, a constant and productive, in other words, phlegmy, cough, and fatigue, she paid a visit to her GP, Walter Joss. He diagnosed her with asbestos poisoning and wrote her a National Health Insurance Certificate of ill health so that she could apply for financial benefits. Now, this is where the story becomes an all-too-familiar tale of an insurance nightmare. It's truly a case of death by paperwork and red tape. So, Nellie submitted her claim to the Newbold Approved Society, which was one of the organizations that administered the UK government's health insurance under the National Insurance Act of 1911. They took one look at Nellie's diagnosis of asbestos poisoning and declared that it was an occupational disease and as such was not under the jurisdiction of the National Insurance Act. They denied Nellie's claim and recommended she submit it to her employer instead under the terms of the Workmen's Compensation Act of 1906. Unfortunately for Nellie at the time, asbestos poisoning was not recognized as an occupational disease that would be considered compensable under the act. This is mostly due to the fact that at that point in time, asbestos was still not widely thought to be dangerous. In a paper entitled, Too Little, Too Late, The Home Office and the Asbestos Industry Regulations, 1931, Peter Bartrip states that while there are isolated references to the dangers of asbestos from the late 1890s, there was no compelling medical or scientific evidence against asbestos and no sustained call for regulation until the late 20s. In another paper, Asbestos, a Chronology of Its Origins and Health Effects, author R. Murray describes one of these older cases that fell to the wayside of history. He says, in 1899, a carter, and a, a carter is C-A-R-D-E-R, someone who cards the, uh, the yarn or the, who cards the, the textile before it gets spun into a roving and then pre-yarn, a carter from Barking, um, which is a great name for a town, <laughs> went to see Dr. Montague Murray at Charing Cross Hospital. Murray did not report the case, which showed an unusual fibrosis essentially scarring due to damage of the lungs until 1906 when he gave evidence to a departmental committee on compensation for industrial diseases. The patient that Dr. Murray had seen described how he was the only survivor of 10 men working in the card room, all the others having died at ages around 30. Tragically, this anonymous patient would eventually meet the same fate as his fellow card room workers. And although Dr. Murray would find heavy scarring in the man's lungs due to asbestos fibers during a post-mortem investigation, there was no immediate reaction within the medical community and no alarms were raised to workers regarding the dangers of asbestos. In fact, Nellie's employer, the Turner Brothers, would go so far as to declare that asbestos was perfectly safe and that her claim should be denied due to asbestos poisoning being not real. So this is the 1920s version of fake news, essentially. <laughs> However, Turner Brothers wasn't just dismissing Nellie's insurance claim because they genuinely thought asbestos was safe. 
According to Irving Selikoff and Morris Greenberg, who wrote about Nellie's ordeal in a paper entitled, quote, A Landmark Case in Asbestosis, end quote, the Turner Brothers Company rejected her claim and alerted its insurance company. They expressed the opinion that it would be, quote, exceedingly dangerous to accept any liability whatever in such a case, end quote. So it seemed pretty obvious that they knew what was up at this point. Uh, if the company had acknowledged Nellie's claim, they would have had to not only admit that asbestos wasn't safe, but they also would have had to start paying sick employees, informing them of the risks and dangers, and implementing proper factory protections, such as ventilation. So they denied her compensation. Eventually, Nellie wrote to the company to demand they take action. In her letter, she asked, What are you going to do about my case? I have been home nine weeks now, and I've not received a penny. I think it's time that there was something from you, as the National Health refuses to pay me anything. I am needing nourishment and the money. I should have had nine weeks' wages now through no fault of my own. The company refused to pay her a cent, leaving Nellie to spiral into destitution and rapidly deteriorating health. On March 14, 1924, at the age of 33, Nellie Kershaw took her last breath. Now, although Nellie's story didn't have a happy ending, her death sparked an inquiry that would lead to a significant milestone in asbestos regulation and workers' protections. After her death, the Rochdale coroner, E. N. Molesworth, launched a more formal inquiry. Dr. F. W. McKicken, I think it's how it's pronounced, uh, performed an autopsy and determined that the cause of Nellie's death was, quote, pulmonary tuberculosis and heart failure, end quote. But he decided to send the lungs for further examination to be sure. So x-rays of Nellie's chest and tissue samples of her lungs were taken, and they ended up on the desk of Dr. William Edmund Cook. Dr. Cook was a pathologist and bacteriologist at, I believe it's pronounced Wigan, Wigan Infirmary in Greater Manchester. Sometimes these UK towns are not pronounced the way they're spelled. So I apologize if I've just totally wrecked that one. Uh, Dr. Cook's examination of Nellie's tissues would turn the tide in the fight to prove that asbestos was killing people. Dr. Cook determined that Although Nellie's lungs did show some evidence of an old, healed tuberculosis infection, the accompanying extensive fibrosis, that deep, widespread scarring, was not at all related. The lung tissue sections he observed under the microscope show, quote, particles of mineral matter, quote, end quote, uh, within the scar tissue. So this is essential because Dr. Cook was able to take something called a photomicrograph, which is basically a photograph view of the slide that he's looking at, um, a, a photomicrograph of Nellie's lung tissue that had the embedded asbestos fibers shown. And he was able to compare it to a photomicrograph of asbestos dust. The dust and the fibers within Nellie's lung tissue are an exact match. Um, if you look at his original article that he wrote, he's got these uh, pictures that 
clearly show that the the two things are identical. Um, an interesting thing that he does note is that asbestos fibers are very unique and they only look a certain way. So there's no mistaking them for anything else. They had to be asbestos. So following this discovery, Dr. Cook wrote a short article entitled Fibrosis of the Lungs Due to the Inhalation of Asbestos Dust that was published in the British Medical Journal on July 26, 1924. In it, he states that, quote, The following case is of importance because it is the first in English medical literature to be definitely proved, end quote. Now, this is a pretty significant shift away from essentially everything in the written medical sphere at the time. During the inquest that continued after Nellie's death, again, Dr. Cook broke from the contemporary stances, stating in a testimony that, quote, mineral particles in the lungs originated from asbestos and were, beyond a reasonable doubt, the primary cause of the fibrosis in the lungs and therefore of death, end quote. The establishment of this irrefutable connection is a huge milestone, and Dr. Cook's paper ends up kicking off a series of other similar articles and studies. The following year, on June 1st, 1925, Sir Thomas Oliver published a piece in the Journal of the Royal Sanitary Institute entitled, Some Dusty Occupations and Their Effects Upon the Lungs. Now, despite the slightly funny title, this paper is actually a pretty scathing condemnation of the denial regarding the involvement of various dusts in the respiratory diseases of workers. In it, Oliver absolutely roasts physicians on their refusal to admit that dust inhalation results in disease. He also staunchly challenges the existing medical opinion that, and I found this just wild, that, quote, the waving ciliary processes of the epithelium lining the respiratory tract caught the particles of dust and wafted them outwards, end quote. So basically, <laughs> Sir Thomas Oliver is refuting the concept that lungs aren't self-cleaning ovens, which he is 100% correct about. They are not self-cleaning ovens, um, unfortunately, very much the opposite. He also coins the term asbestosis as the official medical term for Nellie's condition. So in 1927, Dr. Cook published a follow-up piece to his earlier fibrosis article, further solidifying asbestosis' role in pulmonary fibrosis. The next year, a paper was published. I know this is a lot of papers. Please stick with me. A paper was published about an asbestos worker in Glasgow, Scotland, likewise linking asbestos exposure to pulmonary disease. This spurs Glasgow-based medical inspector Edward Merriweather to open up an investigation into whether asbestos is a definite health risk. His inquiry eventually leads to a parliamentary report published in 1930, three years later. It's entitled, Report on the Effects of Asbestos Dust on the Lungs and the suppression in the asbestos industry. So from here, broad legislation begins to take place. Two years later, the first recognized form of asbestos legislation 
which aimed to reduce the concentration of asbestos in factories, passed. Building regulations were introduced in 1948, just a little while later, and then throughout the next 50 years, various regulations and workers' protections are enacted. In the late 1970s, as the link between asbestos and lung disease becomes more widely understood, more countries begin to wind down their usage of it. This trend continues until 1999, when the use of asbestos is fully banned in the UK, 75 years after Nellie Kershaw's death. In Rochdale in 2006, a relative of Nellie's unveiled a memorial to Nellie and asbestos victims worldwide to honor her legacy and also to serve as a lasting reminder of the consequences of unchecked and dangerous working conditions and the people who perished because of them. While she may not have lived long enough to see these desperately needed safety regulations enacted, Nellie certainly made it possible for others too. Her death set into motion a series of events that changed the asbestos industry in the UK forever. As a result, thousands of workers gained protection and compensation rights. Today, over 50 countries, including Australia, Canada, and all countries within the European Union, have banned the use of asbestos. So, although these monumental accomplishments should absolutely be lauded, asbestos has not yet stopped its horrendous march through our bodies. Because the evidence of its damage takes years, decades in some cases, to become apparent, the death toll is actually still peaking, um, which it seems wild to me. Uh, nearly 20 years after complete asbestos ban in the UK, the death toll is still peaking. A 2019 article from The Guardian reveals that, quote, According to figures from the Health and Safety Executive, the HSE, released this week, in 2017, there were 2,523 deaths from mesothelioma. This is a similar number to the previous five years, end quote. So, despite bans and regulations, people are still paying the price for criminal failings by industry and government. Additionally, the site of the Turner Brothers Asbestos Factory in Spaden Valley, where Nellie Kershaw once worked, while a currently vacant property, um, a condemned property, it has not yet been properly decontaminated and decommissioned. Municipal authorities have yet to render the area safe. So although it is no longer functioning as a factory, it is still putting those in the area at risk, unfortunately. On a more local note, I was quite shocked to discover that asbestos is still not banned here in the U.S. I was almost certain that it was, um, but <laughs> surprise is not uh, guidelines drawn up by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, also known as OSHA, and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, are designed to limit exposure, and asbestos is also highly regulated at this time. Um, however, the World Health Organization has stated that no level of asbestos exposure is safe. So the lack of a total ban here in the U.S. is disappointing, to say the least. According to an NPR article, between 1999 and 2015, there were 45,221 mesothelioma deaths in the U.S. alone. Additionally, 
approximately 3,000 people per year in the U.S. are diagnosed with mesothelioma, which makes it technically rare compared to other cancers in terms of sheer numbers, but 3,000 still feels a bit high to me. Um, also, any deaths in people under the age of 55 are also pretty concerning, since that tells us that workers are still being exposed to dangerous levels of asbestos, despite federal regulations. So, although most people who are diagnosed nowadays were likely exposed before the government regulations of the 1970s came into full effect, um, so a good amount of those cases that we are seeing now are not new. They're, they're on a bit of a time lag. Unless you work with it directly, the risk of exposure from structures, for example, is low, provided that the asbestos is enclosed and undisturbed. So if you are planning on renovating your house, no matter how old it is, please reach out to a professional to do an inspection. However tempting it may be, do not insist on DIYing your way through it, or else you or a loved one may end up being entitled to financial compensation. Well, that's all I got this time. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed your stroll through history. If you have any questions or want to suggest future discussion topics, you can find me on Instagram at at Wretched Conditions Podcast, all one word. Um, keep your ears peeled for the next episode, which will feature something that I mentioned earlier. So if you think you can guess what it is, drop me a comment on Instagram. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Once again, I'm Vivian, and you've been listening to Wretched Conditions.